Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, Jim, I want to know, why can't our politics be better? We've made so much progress in science, technology, medicine, and material things, but often we go ahead and elect weak, incompetent, or bombastic leaders. Yeah, well, maybe part of the answer has to do with our love of stories. You know, a a compelling narrative can help us make sense of a complex world, and it's sort of a shortcut around having to really understand issues. And I think that's one reason that people who get very invested in certain political narratives are often more attached to those than to any particular set of evidence or logical analysis. The Power of Story and Myth, Stephen Greenblatt. Actually, any story worth telling has multiple meanings. It's not only a single line. It's absolutely true that the story of Adam and Eve has carried with it a tremendously complex and painful baggage. It's helped to reinforce the most vicious misogyny. But it's also a story full of of hope. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Richard, I'm really jealous. You're just back in the States after a really fantastic trip. Yeah. I spent a whole week in Florence, a city that, to this day, celebrates its key role in the rise of humanism and the Italian Renaissance. Jim, the buildings are beautifully preserved. You really feel like you're going back in time. And in a lot of ways, the Renaissance is still with us and the ideas that flourished then. If you think of the 14th century authors like Petrarch and Dante, the paintings of Duccio and Giotto, and the rise of the Medici. Yeah, it's a heck of a story, Jim. And, and what happened in Florence, especially during the 14th and 15th centuries, as the Renaissance really got going, had a remarkable impact on the rise of the West, and even to how we see ourselves today. Your trip and what you saw gives us a good excuse to revisit a fascinating interview we did. I just looked it up. It's five years ago. It's amazing how time flies with the Harvard professor and literary historian Stephen Greenblatt. 
Yeah, Stephen is the author of The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. We talked about that book. Uh, he also wrote The Swerve, Will of the World, and other best-selling books. Yeah, I recently read The Swerve, I, well, recently in the last year and a half or so, and it was a recommendation uh, on this podcast, a really extraordinary piece of history. And I love Greenblatt's just broad sweep, his ability to pull in insights and ideas from across the centuries. So here's our interview with Stephen Greenblatt, rewinding back to 2017. You write that human beings cannot live without stories. We may not think we need them, but if you actually analyze the way we spend our lives, a huge amount of our time is producing and consuming stories. I include in that what we read on online and watch on the nightly news, most of which are quasi-fictional stories about uh, existence. But in any case, we consume them all the time. And this includes myths. Yes, we don't often call them myths anymore, but they include the huge collective fantasies that we embrace. And some of them are, how should we say, good for us, and some of them are not so good for us. We try to sort out, but it's often very difficult to sort out which are the ones that are good for us and which are the ones that aren't. In any case, we do it all the time. This is how our collective lives are structured. They're also structured around truths. We often think of stories and myths as serving certain cultural needs or emotional needs, like how I almost got attacked by a tiger when I was going <laughs> down that valley, so avoid that valley. Yes, uh, Isn't that helpful in, in, even in, in the way we think? Well, I think Insofar as we understand it now, it must be, as you've just suggested, that being able to construct stories must have been part of the human survival equipment. If you try to look back as far as we can, the furthest back we can go, let's say, to the paintings on the walls of the Grotte Chauvet, 36,000 years before the present, the lion-headed man, the bull-headed creature, these are... are they must represent myths or stories that people were telling 35,000 years before the present. Why? It must be, how should we say, definitional. It's what it is to be a human being. And the fascinating thing, and even unsettling thing, is if you look at those paintings in Lascaux, there's been effectively no improvement in our <laughs> capacity to represent the world. Those paintings aren't, they may not be better than Rembrandt and Picasso, but they're not obviously worse. That's fascinating, that on the one hand, we demand progress of science and of medicine, but that we can't have progress or we don't have progress in the way we tell stories about ourselves and where we came from. That kind of sets up a clash, doesn't it? It does set up a clash. It's very strange. It means that Shakespeare, or reaching back before Shakespeare, Homer, Gilgamesh, or for that matter, the story of Adam and Eve, are as alive and present and salient in the deepest possible way to our lives as anything that's been done since. So as Americans, are there certain myths that are you think are helpful and unifying or some that are hurtful in some way? What interests me in the, in the stories or the myths that Americans tell themselves uh, is, in effect, what is fascinating about the Adam and Eve myth it's not that there are two different columns, column A, the good stuff, column B, the bad stuff. American exceptionalism is a perfect example of something that is simultaneously wonderful and dangerous. Uh, it's wonderful 
insofar as it encourages one to believe that there is something extraordinary about the uh, power of democracy and freedom in America that, after all, has led to the amelioration of so many lives, including my own and my family's, and there's something horrible about it insofar as it's, it can be so easily attached to the worst aspects of America. And, and that we don't care about the rest of the world. We don't care about the rest of the world. We don't have reason, lessons yeah. to learn from yeah. other countries. And we'll, we'll wipe out uh, uh, our indigenous population and so forth and so on. Your latest book is about Adam and Eve, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. Unpack that story first. What stands out for you in this tale? For me, what stands out in the story are two things. First of all, you hear it when you're five years old, and you never forget it. That's very strange. You take it for granted that that's the way it is, but you shouldn't take anything for granted. That means something amazing has been achieved here. It yeah, just, it's a great story. It, it's a great story. It's a great story that can be communicated in very few words. I mean, you could probably summarize it in three sentences. Yes, or it might take me four. <laughs> no, no, uh, try. <laughs> naked, naked man and woman in a wonderful garden built for them. They're given a command they're told they can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they mustn't eat from or they will die. A snake who happens to talk has a conversation with a woman and asks, is it true that you can't eat of this tree? woman says, yes, we can't touch it. Indeed, he says. And he tells her, no, it actually will be good for you. It'll make you uh, like a god. woman eats, passes to the man, he eats. And they're punished, and here we are. Maybe a little more than four sentences, but perhaps with the liberal use of semicolons. (laughs) (laughs) I could do it shorter if you want me to go back and try again. No, 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 it's great. It's a great story, especially given the fact that it's a story that professes to explain almost everything. It explains sex, labor, death, transgression, and so forth and so on. Everything is somehow in that. Secondly, it is a problem, the story. The problem is... Well, there are many problems to it, but the great central problem that's obsessed people for several thousand years is that it's based on a prohibition, a divine prohibition. You must not do something. But the thing you're told not to do, which is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is the one thing that you would need to do if you wanted to observe the prohibition reliably because you'd know the difference between good and evil. Uh, now, that's not a 21st century observation. That's an observation that goes back thousands of years. It's a problem that people have grappled with in the story. And indeed, one of the reasons that the story is great, one of the reasons that the story has lasted as long as it's lasted, is precisely that it's in its tiny compass, it encodes some serious problem that is difficult to wrestle with. The moral dilemmas of of how could a loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God set humans up for such a Well, for some people, very early on, that's what it meant. And that leads to the other thing that makes the story so fascinating and, how shall I say, makes the story so essential to us even now. The story is incredibly powerful about human responsibility for the way things are. It's very difficult to understand how human responsibility works. But this story encodes at its center the idea that there's a choice that is made by evidently humans who are free to make a choice. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're speaking with Stephen Greenblatt on a reprise episode of How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. You know, one reason we do shows like this one is to get a better understanding, not just of the past, but where we are today. You know, before we find concrete solutions to problems and policies, I think we need a better understanding of of not only uh, history, but also the human condition and, and human nature. Human nature. Exactly. Now, back to our interview. Jim and I usually defend rationalism and science. But has the post-Enlightenment era elevate science? Has that also obscured or, or damaged our understanding of great stories, great myths like this one? Well, I think, first of all, we might ask ourselves, why is it that so many of our fellow human beings in the world and in our own society, which we take to be enlightened and well-informed, why is it that they believe in the literal truth right. of the story. And when asked if they believe in the theory of evolution or in lots of other bases of contemporary science, say, no, they don't believe it. That's weird, given the overwhelming preponderance of scientific evidence and given the fact that people actually get CAT scans and all kinds of, quite happily, all take kinds their of things, vaccines. <laughs> take <laughs> vaccines based on modern science. So how yeah. is this? Now, we could say it's actually quite easy to say, well, it's because people are brainwashed or because they're dumb. But actually, I'm not inclined to think that at all. I'm not inclined to think it for lots of reasons, starting with the fact that once you peel off uh, the last 150, 200 years, which is, after all, just a blink of an eye, many of the most brilliant people in the world believed in this set of stories or first and thought hard about them. Uh, so the question is, why do contemporaries think so? And I think the answer is that the story is fantastically good to think with. It's deep and important. Uh, and it's difficult, to be sure, to figure out how to coordinate that with all the beliefs that, or all of the practices that are based on our contemporary understanding of science. But it's more important to people to hold on to both uh, things than to give, simply give one up. When you say hold on to both things? Even though it's irrational to hold on to both things as a, as a literal belief, it's possible to believe in the theory of evolution and to believe in God. People have done it. But it's actually not possible to believe in the theory of evolution and to believe in the literal truth of Adam and Eve. It, it's, it's incompatible with any contemporary account of the origins of human life. But people somehow have both things in their head. Why? Why? Because, well, the simple answer would be actually Darwin 
was writing, how should we say, late last night. It's very recent. The story isn't very easily used for us now, even though we, the three of us sitting here, believe it's true. But I don't want to give up uh, this myth, which has everything to say about human choice and responsibility, any more than I want to give up Shakespeare, who is also had a set of beliefs that I would now regard as completely wacky. We could list thousands of them who've created stories for us to live by, ways in which we could sort out what our lives mean. One thing that you talk about early in the book is how pulling together the story of Genesis and other, other stories became something that helped enforce a kind of tribal unity. It helped tell their own story in a more powerful way. And today we see a lot of people using stories, especially religiously based stories, to kind of build their own tribal communities, not always to the good. And certainly it's been a big theme on our show that the rise of tribalism, the difficulty in groups that disagree to, to speak to each other, seems to be, at least in the very short term, <laughs> it led me, hopefully it's not a long-term trend, but in the U.S. certainly it's gotten harder. The hope, if there is hope, and I'm not, you know, I'm not Stephen the Goofy Optimist, I think there's lots of reasons to be worried for all the reasons that you say. But the hope is that actually any story worth telling has multiple meanings. It's not only a single line. It's absolutely true that the story of Adam and Eve has carried with it a tremendously complex and painful baggage. It's helped to reinforce the most vicious misogyny. But it's also a story full of of hope and of potentially progressive meanings having to do with human choice, having to do with independence, having to do with love, with what it means to embrace and to seize upon someone who feels like she or he is part of you. And I would say that with stories as with politics, you've got to fight. It's a struggle. You can't sit in the sideline and let only the, how should we say, the, the most repressive forces own the story. Another aspect of this, you're a professor at Harvard, you teach undergraduates. Have you seen a shift in the way that students approach uncomfortable material, uncomfortable ideas, things that they may regard as, as sexist or racist or homophobic or, or anti-Semitic? I think it's the case that students are, are less inclined simply cheerfully, passively to receive whatever the professor says is the, is the important thing to receive. I think it's the case that students have been encouraged by people like myself uh, to have a more active and energetic relationship to what it is that they're learning. As it happens, I can't tell you horror stories of terrible things that have happened at Harvard, but I can tell you that for myself, I'm more sensitive to it, perhaps, than I used to be. So that when I was teaching a course precisely on Adam and Eve, and I was teaching a particularly extreme and violent piece of 14th century misogyny. It's a, a poem, a French fabliau called The Cunt That Was Made With a Spade, about uh, God creating a woman and then realizing he hadn't given her a cunt. You'll pardon me, but that's the language of the, of the French 14th century fabliau. So he took a spade and he realized that's the way to do it. He digs into her and makes her genitals. And then it's also encouraging, it encourages the man to beat the woman regularly. So 
it's important to understand the misogyny. It's important to grasp. It's not the meaning of the whole story, but it's important to understand that's an element of the Adam and Eve story as it's worked its way through the centuries. It, it fed into a particularly uh, vicious form of misogyny. And when I taught this poem, I made clear in a way that maybe I wouldn't have before. Not a trigger warning exactly, but I made clear that this is very violent, misogynistic material. And this is not, how should we say, the boys sitting around laughing about this together. And it's important not to be. So in that sense, I entirely, how should we say, embrace the sensitivity. I don't embrace the craziness that's out there sometimes, uh, the, the stupidity that's out there sometimes about this. But I think being alert to what is carried by these materials is actually a good thing. Stephen Greenblatt, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Stephen Greenblatt from our interview with him in 2017. It's How Do We Fix It? Coming up next, our recommendation. Richard, I'm not going to be able to get you off this Renaissance Italy kick, am I? No, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a recommendation that has a lot to do with my recent travels. It's the Italian Renaissance, and rather than a book, it's a series of lectures by Professor Kenneth Bartlett at the University of Toronto. I'm listening to it, or have been listening to it, on Audible, but there are other ways you can get these lectures. Um, this one is a wonderfully clear explanation of, of why the Renaissance matters today and the at times rollicking history of some of its most compelling ideas and key players and, and main events. Just a, a bit of a plug as well, Jim, for uh, lectures, uh, half-hour lectures, one-hour lectures can be a great way to, to dig into uh, a subject that perhaps you don't know much about, want to learn, and uh, there are several ways to do this. There's a One Day University, uh, which is an interesting uh, collection of lectures by university professors on a huge range of topics, and then also great courses. Um, they go on for a little bit longer, require a bit more of a commitment. But still, I, I recommend these these lectures. Uh, there are hundreds, even thousands of them out there. Yeah, I'm going to add this to my ever-growing queue of things to listen to while I'm puttering around the house or in the garden. Next up, our conversation. And Richard, I went back and listened to our, our thoughts. You know, in some ways, not that much has changed in terms of, of the relevance of this particular episode. So we decided to leave our conversation intact. If you get a little sense of deja vu, that's probably the reason. One of my favorite comments by Stephen Greenblatt was when he talked about the beauty and power of stories. And as a podcaster... It's all about really, you, really, Richard. Yeah, that really struck <laughs> it's me. It's all about us. It, it, yeah, it, it, it struck me that, that that's a huge reason why podcasts, not necessarily ours, are so popular. Because they tell stories. They, they're intimate ways of telling stories. And many of the most popular podcasts are indeed stories. But I was also struck by what he said about that period in the Renaissance when people started questioning the stories. They were taking the Adam and Eve story so literally that yeah. they were forced to confront all the different elements that weren't 
that you couldn't really make add up as a literal story. And it's no coincidence that went hand in hand with the scientific revolution when they started realizing, wait, if the planets go around the Earth, then the mathematical models we're using to, to explain this, they're not working anymore. Maybe there's a, we need to look at it a different way. They also have to be subjected to skepticism. We have to be able to ask questions, see if the facts fit, and sometimes we're going to have to revise or rethink our stories. And adding to that, Stephen Greenblatt said that any story, any great story has multiple meanings. Yeah, I thought that was really important, really easy to overlook. In the current debates over, you know, um, campus protests against teaching Western civilization or the, you know, whether the founding fathers were racist and stuff, and and then in the, the conservative pushback to that, both sides tend to think that the stories have to be black or white. Right versus wrong. Simplistic. Yeah, and not really recognizing the, the way that they think can be interwoven. And it's possible to tease those apart and discuss them responsibly without falling into that trap that has to be all good or all bad. Since speaking of that, some of the criticism of the media from both the left and the right has to do with criticism of bias. And for me, the problem often is which stories are chosen and how those stories are told as opposed to conscious bias. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think I think reporters tend to, once you buy into a certain narrative about a major event going on, you tend to notice the evidence that supports the narrative and not the stuff that doesn't fit. Just the way scientists will will tend to, if there's a reigning paradigm for how the world, something works, they'll tend to focus on all the evidence that supports it until, like the planets going around the Earth, that you just can't sustain it anymore, and then finally have to open your mind to a different perspective. Which is why I love that they actually go through a process of trying to disprove the theory that they believe to be true. And I think today, if more journalists should say that, more politicians should say that, we should all be willing, instead of getting so invested in our particular narratives, our stories that make our side sound good and the other side sound bad, just say, I don't know. It's complicated. (laughs) You know, let's examine it a little bit more because maybe it's not so simple. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer, music by Lou Stravinsky, and we're a production of Davies Content. Uh, Look us up, find out more. DaviesContent.com. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.